1: Washington with a trek out to Seattle, Sunday 425 kickoff in one of the toughest venues in the NFL, Seattle's Lumen Field, where rain is in the forecast for the entire day with temperatures in the low 50s. Of course, rain is in the forecast for the Pacific Northwest. Uh, This show's presenting sponsor is Window Nation. If you've got older windows, 10 years of age or older, you should get new windows. Call them at eight six six ninety 90 nation or go to windownation.com. Mention my name. Tell them I told you to call them. They'll take good care of you. You'll get a free estimate so you've got nothing to lose. Eight six six ninety nation or windownation.com. Uh, Sunday's game in Seattle is a game that if Washington wins it, will change the conversation about our team around the league. That's not exaggeration. That's not hype. If they beat the Seahawks Sunday on the road to get to 5-5, five and five, especially if victory comes with another big day for Sam Howell and the offense, if that happens, Washington's going to be on everybody's radar. Everybody's going to be talking about them come Monday as a team that can make a run to the NFC playoffs. Uh, My preview and pick of this game coming up in this opening segment, Jay Gruden will join me after that for his weekly hit on this Friday podcast, and then 11 picks for the smell test in the final segment of the show. More NFL picks than college picks this week for those of you that are convinced I do much better on pro football than I do college football. Uh, I will talk some Maryland-Nebraska in the final segment as well. A huge game for both teams as Mike Loxley is looking for a third straight bowl eligibility year, and Matt Rule in his first year in Lincoln trying to get his first Husker team to a bowl game as well. This could be the last legitimate chance for a win for both teams this year. Maryland's got Michigan next week, and then they close at Rutgers, and Rutgers is good uh, under Greg Schiano this year, uh, or let me just say, much improved. Uh, Loxley on the ropes a little bit. No job security conversations with Mike Loxley, please. Uh, but uh, the Terps need a win tomorrow. And Lincoln, good college football Saturday, um, highlighted by Michigan at Penn State. As the recording of this podcast is taking place, no news on whether or not Michigan's going to be punished for the sign-stealing drama that's been going on. Uh, Washington and Seattle on Sunday. I am looking forward, I am, to the game on Sunday. And I'm also looking forward to the changes that will be coming at the end of the year. All right, I am. You know, I think Josh Harris is already well on his way to putting together a list of general manager candidates that he wants to interview, perhaps even a short list of potential new head coaches that he wants or is hoping that his new GM will want to interview. So, the offseason coming up is going to be an interesting one. We all understand that. It'll be fun to know that the next group is not going to be Dan Snyder picking, you know, coaches, etc. Uh, I am looking forward to that. Uh, but that's a few months away, and we're still in the midst of a regular season that still has eight games left, nearly half the season for Washington. And their last two games have, for me right now, uh, subject to change, of course, but for me right now, the last two games have given me reason to be optimistic about what we're going to see the rest of the year. Now, this is Washington. It never seems to go well, especially once you think it might but for now, anyway, I think they are an upset win on Sunday in Seattle away from changing the whole vibe of this season. If they are to pull it off with another strong performance by Sam Howell in the offense at 5-5 five and five with the Giants on deck, the outlook on this season will be different. I think it will be different for a lot of you who don't think they have any chance of beating Seattle and might admit, hey, okay, if they beat Seattle, we can have a conversation about the rest of the season on Monday. Uh, I think they have a chance to beat Seattle, and maybe that's why I'm having this conversation right now. But I do know that if they do pull it off, the outlook on this season will be completely different, even though some of you will say that it's just delaying the inevitable, that even if they play well on Sunday, win and win some more games and get on a little bit of a mini-roll, you're convinced they'll blow the one or two that matter the most at the end of the year. I'm not going to disagree with that. I understand that lack of expectation or that expectation that they would would blow it even if they put themselves in position to do something. I'm just telling you that if they win on Sunday and Sam plays well, he and the team are going to become a trendy pick to go to the playoffs. And while I'm not going to be the guy, I promise, talking about getting to the playoffs and then having a chance to do something when they get there, I will be talking about a team that is going to play some important playoff stakes games down the stretch. And that will be a good thing for Sam Howell to play in those kinds of games down the stretch versus you know, the kinds of games that we thought they would be playing when they lost to the Giants a few weeks ago. If they lose, there's still going to be some opportunities, you know, coming up, um, assuming that they beat the Giants next week. That could be the closest to a should-win game they've had in years. The Giants right now at my bookie are 17-point underdogs to Dallas. I think that's the biggest point spread of the season so far. They don't have a quarterback. They don't have a quarterback capable of playing well enough to keep a game close against anybody. You know, Washington win or lose Sunday against Seattle will be at least a touchdown favorite. Maybe if they win Sunday as high as a double-digit favorite against the team that just beat them a few weeks ago, 14-7. to It's because of the quarterback. No Daniel Jones, no Tyrod Taylor. They'll have this guy Devito. I looked this up because I was curious about this. Um, again, I think that, I don't think they'll be a double-digit favorite if they lose to Seattle or if they don't play well against Seattle. But if they were to beat Seattle, don't be surprised if Washington's a nine, nine and a half, ten-point favorite next week. Dallas is a seventeen-point favorite, and it seems to be climbing. Um, But I looked this up before I started to record the podcast today. It's been over six years since Washington was favored by double digits. Six years. That's a long run without just one flukish game where they're playing kind of well and they're playing a terrible opponent. They were a 12-point favorite on October fifteenth, 2017, against the San Francisco 49ers in Kyle Shanahan's first year as head coach of the Niners. By the way, the Skins won, uh, won that game 26-24. They were up 17 nothing, and then nearly blew the big lead. They won the game, but they, they didn't come close to covering. But that was the last time they were a double-digit favorite over anybody. That's an amazingly long run of not being in a game where you were expected to win the game easily for almost any NFL team. As someone who bets, I can tell you why they haven't been a big favorite over anybody for a long period of time. It's not just because they've been you know, a bad team or a mediocre team for much of the time over the last six seasons. It's because they've been so mediocre to awful on offense. Teams that can score will at least have a game or two over a few-year period where they're playing an awful opponent And oddsmakers will make them a significant favorite, you know, a 10 or or more point favorite. But Washington hasn't been able to score consistently since the 2017 season. This year is the best year scoring-wise. They're averaging 21.2 points per game. And they are 18th currently in points per game in the league. Last year, they were 24th in the league. The year before that, they were 24th in the league. They averaged 18.9 points per game last year, 19.7 in 2021. They were 25th in the league in 2020. They were dead last, 32nd in the league in scoring in 2019. And in 2018, they were 29th in the league in scoring. That's why they haven't been a double-digit favorite since 2017. Because they've played some teams that have been pretty bad. And in those games, they've only been, you know, six and a half, seven, seven and a half, eight point favorites. In 2017, they were the 16th highest scoring team in the league. In 2016, they were 12th. And in 2015, they were 10th. So during that stretch, they were a double digit favorite every once in a while. Uh, but if they were to play well offensively, in Seattle Sunday, and then win the game, I think they could be a 9, 10-point favorite at least against the Giants. If they don't play well offensively and it's like a regression game back to what we saw at times during the first seven, they're still going to be a 7-point favorite over the Giants. The Giants are awful right now. Um, anyway, uh, that's that's next week. Seattle first. I think they can win the game. I really do. I am optimistic. I've been off this year for the most part. I guess last week I got it right. I think the Philadelphia game, maybe final score-wise, I was close. I think I was in terms of thinking that it would be a close game. But I remember the last time this year that I was somewhat intrigued or you know excited about a game. It was the Buffalo game, and I predicted them to win, and they did not. They lost 37 to 3. I am excited about this game. I think that Seattle is a beatable team. It would also be the best team that they've beaten. As I've mentioned a couple of times this week, they're 10 and 25. Uh, the teams that they've beaten, excuse me, are 10 and 25. They haven't beaten a good team yet. But I, I think that the last two weeks have kind of changed my view for now, subject to change, of course, as always. Um, but I think they've got a chance to pull off an upset Sunday in Seattle against 5-3, and three. a 5-3 and three team coming off a horrendous loss to Baltimore last week, 37-3. All right, here are my keys to a win over Seattle on Sunday. Washington beats the Seahawks if. All right, number one, do the same thing offensively you've done for the last two weeks. That's the way – this team needs to play offensive football, if they are going to be a heavy pass over run ratio team. And I don't think that that's going to change. I don't think all of a sudden they're going to become a run first team or a balanced team. But if you're intent on throwing the ball a lot more than running it, and I don't have a problem with that, you can't revert to what wasn't working for the first seven games at times, which was the pure drop back stuff. You've got to stick with what's worked. Quick game, three-step drops, screens, traditional and bubble, dashes, sprint outs, moving the pocket, getting Sam into rhythm, getting him confident, getting the ball quickly into the hands of your playmakers and keeping a defense off balance. They've done a great job the last two weeks. Seattle's a little bit different than New England and a little bit different than Philadelphia, so it won't be exactly the same. Seattle's strength is in their back end. Um, but this is the kind of offense, if they're going to be heavy pass over run, this is the way they need to throw the football for now. It doesn't exclude dropbacks. They had plenty of those last week, but it came after the established quick game and getting it out in a hurry. You're going to minimize the number of times he gets hit, you're going to minimize the number of times he gets sacked, and you're going to maximize the number of times a ball leaves his right hand and lands in the arms of one of your playmakers. Uh, I'm looking forward to hopefully seeing a third consecutive week of that. Uh, there's been a lot of discussion about how bad Seattle's run defense is and will this be the week that they really lean on the run a little bit more? Look, last week they got 24 rushes out of Gibson and Robinson Jr. But it's because they moved the chains, you know, they moved the chains by using their quick game to gain yards to stay on the field to convert on third down to to make first downs on first and second down as well. But 55% on third down gives you a lot of opportunities, you know, each week. They've run 21 more offensive plays than their opponents the last two weeks. I think this is a big part of it. As far as, you know, whether or not they'll run it more this week because Seattle's rush defense has been weak here recently. I'm not buying that Seattle's rush defense is as bad as it's been made out to be. They added Leonard Williams, you know, at the trade deadline, so we'll see him for the second time and in a month. Uh, He was with the Giants when the Giants beat Washington 14 to seven. Baltimore runs it on everybody. Okay, they had 300 yards against Seattle last week. Um, they faced Arizona. Arizona's average yards per carry was okay. They faced the Browns the week before Baltimore. The Cleveland rushed it for 155 yards, but it was 3.8 yards per carry. I, I they had a great uh, rush defense against Cincinnati. I'm not buying that their rush defense is so awful that Washington should be able to go on the road and take the crowd out of it by running and being more balanced this week than they have been at, at any time this year. I don't think that's in Eric Bieniemy's mindset. Um, I like the run extension plays. I think that's essentially whats what he's been able to say to Ron, who I do think has been pushing since the Buffalo game to decrease the number of pure dropbacks, so that the sack numbers would come down. I think Eric was stubborn there for a few weeks, but ultimately, we've gotten two really good game plans, two well-called games given his talent, given the teams that he's faced, and I think Ron's okay with, you know, the pass to run ratio as long as some of those throws are quick ones and act kind of as run extension plays. So number one, Washington beats Seattle if they continue to do what they've been doing offensively in the past game. Number two, they've got to eliminate big plays on defense. It's been the explosive plays all year long that have killed this defense and made it a very disappointing year through, uh, through nine games. The chunk plays, last week another one. Now they did a pretty good job defensively last week, with the exception of the 64-yard run by Stevenson, uh, and that. But that those are the plays that have hurt: big runs, big throws. You know, even the Giant game where the defense held the Giants to 14 points and 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 you know did a pretty good job for most of the day. It was the chunk plays. It was the long one to the you know the rookie wide receiver from Tennessee. It was a couple of decent-sized Barkley runs. You've got to minimize the explosives, the big offensive plays. And this week, this is a team that lives off of the big play with DK Metcalf, with Lockett, with Smith Njigba, with Kenneth Walker III, with Zach Charbonnet out of the backfield. Like, they rely on the big play. Geno can make the big play. He's also hurt them, you know, by – uh, turning it over a little bit. He's got you know nine touchdowns, seven picks. He's had a lot of turnover-worthy plays. I think one of the keys to to a win over Seattle is force Geno Smith and the Seattle offense to go 12, 13, 14 plays without making a mistake. You know, don't play as much man coverage as they have. Washington's played more man coverage this year than they did last year. I Where's the zone matching? Where's more of the zone? Forbes was more of a zone uh, eyes on quarterback corner to begin with. So I'd like to see a defensive game plan that is more bend-don't-break. You know, don't give up the big play. Can Geno Smith consistently go 13, 14 plays and not make a mistake? I don't think so. Next up, and lastly, on the list of Washington beats Seattle if keys is the cliched don't self-destruct. But it's more important this week. When you play in a venue like the one they're playing in on Sunday, it is easy to self-destruct. You know, when you play in Seattle, when you play in Kansas City at Arrowhead, you play in Buffalo, you play in New Orleans, it is really hard to play a clean game. You've got to be buttoned up, especially on offense. You can't have third and threes turn into third and eights because of false starts. So whatever you know the signals are, the silent counts are, you got to be buttoned up offensively. And then you can't obviously turn the ball over. They got away last week with losing the turnover battle, but winning the game, but that's because that was New England. You can't hand the game to them. And you know, self-destruction in these venues, just you see it all the time with road teams. And and so they've got to be ready to play a clean football game. And I'll just add one thing to this last key. Uh, the crew calling the game Sunday, the referee crew, is the Alex Kemp crew. They are number one in average flags thrown per game and number one in average flags thrown against the road team per game. you got to be sharp. The flags are going to be flying if they are consistent with what they've been over the first nine weeks of the season. The Alex Kemp crew, number one in flags thrown per game, average flags thrown per game, number one in average flags thrown against the road team per game. Uh, Washington's going to have to play a pretty clean game Sunday um, to have a chance. With that said, I like them Sunday. I know I've been wrong in the upset uh, picks this year, uh, Buffalo being the one where I thought they'd win and they lost by 34. I just think this is a winnable game Sunday, and I'm, I'm definitely influenced by the last two weeks and the last two weeks offensively. I've got Washington winning a high scoring 30 to 24 game in overtime. They win the toss, they take the ball, they drive it down the field, and Sam Howe is once again viewed as a guy that can do it with his third consecutive outstanding game and his second outstanding game in a win. 30 to 24 in overtime. Kiss of death, I know. All right. Uh, A couple of quick things, and then we'll get to Jay Gruden, including something I want to play for you um, that I found. Uh, The first thing is this. Montez Sweat last night, eight pressures for the Bears, the most in a game for a Chicago Bear pass rusher since Robert Quinn in 2020. He did not have a sack, but eight pressures, the most for a Chicago Bear pass rusher in three years. Good for Montez. I'm rooting for him. Looked odd in that Chicago uniform, especially given that it was the orange alternate uniforms that the Bears were winning last night in what was a hideous Thursday night game. Chicago won it 16-13. It actually helps them because they have Carolina's number one pick in the draft uh, next year. Uh, Sunday, Chase Young makes his debut for the 49ers in I think the biggest game of the day. It feels like a huge spot for the Niners with three losses in a row. Feels like almost not a must win obviously, but if they lose that game to Jacksonville who is rolling at 6 and 2 and Seattle wins, Seattle's in first place in the NFC. West, looking forward to watching football all day long before Washington kicks off at 4:25. Cleveland-Baltimore, another really good game in the four o'clock win- window. In addition to Washington, Seattle, which is a good game, uh, Detroit-San Diego, uh, Detroit-LA Chargers. Um, that's a big game for the Chargers to kind of get above 500 and be legitimately in the wild card race. They, man, they should be. That team, I think, is better than, um, then, then the results, you know, I don't know what it is. Uh, but maybe they got something going against the jets, although they certainly didn't get anything going offensively against the jets on Monday night. All right. Uh, before we get to Jay, I wanted to mention this and I want to play something for you. So Washington and Seattle, despite Seattle being in the AFC for half of its existence, roughly, um, they have quite the history. You know, they've played 22 times. Washington, 13-6 and six in the regular season. They've played three times in the postseason. Washington's most common opponent in the playoffs since the merger in 1970. They've played the 49ers four times, the Vikings four times. And then there are four teams they've played three times. Detroit, Chicago, Tampa, and Seattle. Of course, the last time they played Seattle in the playoffs was following the 2012 season. That is one of the more infamous games in Washington history. Robert Griffin III going down in a heap on a... Uh, rough turf, to say the least. In a twenty-four to fourteen loss, they were up fourteen to nothing in that game in two thousand and seven. Or following the two thousand and seven season, they played in the wild card round as well at Seattle. They took a fourteen to thirteen lead in the fourth quarter, and then and then gave up twenty-two consecutive unanswered, and they lost thirty-five to fourteen. Of course, that was the season following the Sean Taylor tragic death where they got on a roll. They ended up in the postseason against Seattle. But the first time they played the Seahawks in the postseason was following the 2005 season. And that was, you could argue, as close to an NFC championship game as they were during the Snyder era. I hate to call the Tampa divisional playoff Lost fourteen to thirteen following uh, the '99 uh, season as a Snyder era playoff loss because he took over the team before he could ruin it that season. Um, but when they went to Seattle following a playoff win over Tampa uh, in the wild card round, they were up three to nothing with a chance to take a ten to nothing lead. And this play, which many fans, including yours truly, have referenced, it was an opportunity to go up 10 to nothing on a Carlos Rogers ball that was right in his hands for a pick six, and he dropped it. Here's Dick Stockton uh, and Moose Johnston on the call for Fox on that day in January 2006.
2: Hasselbeck looking for a receiver and is
0: tipped away and almost picked off by Carlos Rogers. Maurice Morris flaring from the backfield. And very nearly a pick and a score by the rookie Carlos Rogers. What a great play right there. Matt Hasselbeck holds this a little bit too long. The speed of the secondary players in the NFL,
1: too good to make a throw like that. You waited on it too long. Very fortunate that he didn't have that one going back to the house. Carlos Rogers, uh, he had some vision issues. Remember, got better when he got to the 49ers, and they corrected his vision, and all of a sudden he started making interceptions. But that ball was right in his hands for a ten to nothing second quarter lead, and Washington was playing great on defense. And Sean Alexander had already been knocked out of the game by LeVar Arrington. Uh, they had a chance with that. Uh, play to go up 10-0 and potentially get to what would have been an NFC championship game in Carolina, Washington against the Panthers. No, that was not the Ron Rivera uh, Panthers. Uh, Last time Washington was in Seattle, it was that game in which none of the offensive line was available to play. And Jay Gruden basically had to introduce the players in the locker room to one another uh, because there were so many new players in the locker room for that ga- game, especially on the offensive line. And they had, you know, that incredible ending down 14 to 10, where they went 90 some yards in a few plays or 80 some yards in a, in a few plays and won the game. You'll hear that at the very end of the show. This segment of the show with Jay Gruden is brought to you by my friends at Surfside. Uh, Guys, if you're hunkering down to watch football this weekend and you're looking for a food answer for Penn State, Michigan at noon tomorrow or all of the games Sunday, we get a one o'clock window where we're not solely focused on Washington. So we get to watch Baltimore, Cleveland, San Francisco at Jacksonville before Washington kicks off at Seattle at 425, I've got the food answer for you. Go to SurfsideDC.com and order one of Surfside's fajita boxes. They're fajita chicken, fajita steak, fajita uh, veggies. So good. I did this a few weeks ago. The chicken, the steak, so tender, so flavorful, and it's all in a convenient grab-and-go box. You can order online at SurfsideDC.com. You can pick it up. You can have it delivered straight to your door. This is for a small gathering, a medium gathering, or a large gathering. The food is great. The fajitas are are incredible, and this is a great answer for just this time of year when you've got you know gatherings at your house, holiday time. These fajita boxes make dinner so easy. You know, you can pick it up on your way home. Uh, you can again order for for delivery. SurfsideDC.com's got your food answer. For this time of year and certainly for a football weekend with their fajita boxes. Again, learn more at SurfsideDC.com. Jay Gruden is with me every Friday during football season and he jumps on right now. We'll talk about Washington and Sam Howell and their matchup with Seattle here in a moment. I wanted to start by going back to Sunday and a coach who coached for you, Kevin O'Connell, who's the head coach of the Minnesota Vikings, and what he was able to pull off on Sunday with Joshua Dobbs, who came in, you know, after the trade deadline midway through the week and apparently knew nothing of the playbook, had to come in after the first drive of the game when their quarterback who would replace Kirk Cousins uh, was concussed. And the word is that he essentially walked through uh, with Josh Dobbs over the final, you know, 54 minutes of that game each play, as he called it, like he he basically instructed him what to do on every play, and somehow they pulled off, you know, an incredible win at Atlanta. Uh, he coached for you. Tell me what you think happened Sunday in Atlanta.
3: Well, Josh Dobbs had about three days to learn some plays. So Josh is a, one of the smartest human beings on earth. So he can handle it. He's been in seven different uh, systems already. It's just a matter of um, the, the terminology is what's different for Josh. You know, some people call Aggie, All Go, whatever it might be, but the, the, the plays are pretty similar. It's about the terminology. And if anybody can handle it, Josh can handle it. But in the course of a game, you give your backup quarterback, like we had to do with Sanchez, and we had to do with Josh Johnson when he got here in a short time notice. You have to give him like a package of about twenty to twenty-five plays. They got to learn. And situationally, like third down, short, third down, long, short yardage, goal line, whatever it might be, red zone, and they have to learn a package of plays, and then you might have to talk them through a couple of them just to remind them what this is and who's going where in the motion and calling the play. So, yeah, it's it's difficult, but Josh is, uh, like I said, very intelligent guy and can handle it.
1: You know, you mentioned Mark Sanchez, so there was a story told this week. I, I'm going to ask you if it's true. The night that you guys played Philadelphia in 2018, which was two weeks after Alex got hurt, and that night, remember, Colt McCoy got hurt, you put Mark Sanchez yep. into the game on a very limited playbook. The story that was told this week, I heard it on XM Sirius, was that you turned over the headset or you got Kevin O'Connell involved because O'Connell explained the plays to Sanchez as if they were the plays that were sort of similar to the playbook they had both shared together in 2009 with the Jets is that true
3: yes as soon as uh, Colt McCoy got hurt I took the headphones off and gave them to Kevin uh, for a couple of reasons one because he had been working with him um, on an individual basis trying to get him caught up to a level of functionality where he could go into a game and play so they were communicating closely so I let him call the plays the first play called was uh was a duo I went 90 yards for touchdown I said damn Kevin you're pretty good at this
1: (laughs) yeah Adrian Peterson
3: right yeah yeah
1: the the rest of the night did not go so well it didn't go as well as it did for Dobbs on Sunday but but it was a better opponent
3: no, yeah, you're exactly right. But you know, the big thing is when you have a quarterback like that, athletic ability is is really important. Because Josh Dobbs made some plays with his legs, that you know, I, I mean, you just can't coach, which is critical in third down situations. And for some reason, Atlanta Falcons decided to play two man on fourth and seven against Josh Dobbs, who can run. Which I just still can't understand that one. But anyway, because Atlanta was my survivor pick, that's why I'm so. Oh, really? Yeah. Call it two man. Yeah.
1: yeah. <laughs> well, you won your lock of the week on this show. You had Cincinnati on Sunday night, um, so you are now, yeah, I course. think five. Uh, I think you're five and two um, so far with your locks. What do you, of the guys, week what you guys want from me?
3: What do you want from me? I know
1: it's damn. It's really good. Um, you mentioned Josh Dobbs. Uh, Josh Johnson was incredibly bright too, right? I mean, that was one of the reasons you signed him.
3: Yes, Josh Johnson was is, is not was he is yeah. very bright. And I had him at Cincinnati, which was a good thing, so he kind of, some of the plays kind of carried over, and he had a little bit, he remembered a little bit of those plays, so it was easy for him to come in and function too. And he could run
1: I've, I've always wondered about some of these quarterbacks that hang around forever. You know, Chase Daniel, Josh Johnson, Josh Dobbs, um, you know, Jacoby Brissett, you know, a, a guys that have never been regular starters, but everybody seems to want them in their quarterback room, in their locker room, um, as a backup in, in case of, you know, break glass emergency. What is it about these kinds of guys that allows them to stick around for a long career, never be a regular starter, make a lot of money, by the way? I mean, Chase Daniels, an all-timer, I think he made 50 million or something like that in the NFL and, and played in like three or four games total. But what is it about those guys that, that gives them a chance to stick forever?
3: Well, first thing you want your backup to do is he's got to be able to function if something happens. That's number one. He's got to be good. And those guys are all uh, pretty good quarterbacks. Number two, they have to support the starter. And they got to make sure that, you know, there's no drama, there's no controversy, that this is a starter. We're going to support him. But I'm going to get myself ready to play if need be. And if need be, I'm going to be able to function. And all those guys can do that. Um, Certain teams want certain types of backups, backups that are similar to the skill set that they have as a starter. Some people want skill set that is totally different because it gives a defense a different look so it's, just a, it's a matter of who you want and what you want but the most important thing is can they function when they get in there and number two will they support the starter and make him better
1: um how quickly were did you feel that kevin o'connell sean mcveigh um if ever were going to be future head coaches
3: Who well, that's a good question well being a head coach from a staff, number one, your staff, you have to have a pretty successful team yourself. You know, So you have to do well on one side of the ball. We were pretty good on offense, so it got them some interviews. And then once you get the interviews, do they have the personalities? Do they have the uh, ability to win over an owner and GM in an interview? And, and the answer is easily yes. So getting their foot in the door is the most important thing. So you have to have success on your staff first. And then once they get the foot in the door and they get in front of people, Will they perform? And easily, yes, for both those two guys. They're both very, um, they're both very bright. Obviously, they know football. Um, they have great personalities. They can motivate people. So that that comes off once they get in front of people. But you have to get in front of people first.
1: I mean, but did you know as they were coaching for you? Did you know they were going to eventually get the opportunity and impress oh, yeah. somebody?
3: Well, yeah, like I said, you have to have the success. I mean, there's a lot of good coaches like that out there that haven't had the success or the opportunities to get interviewed because they just haven't been on good teams. But, yes, for sure, you can tell that they have something more than other assistant coaches on your staff, if that makes sense.
1: And, Sean?
3: There are some assistants on your staff that you know that will never be a head coach, but there are some, hey, if this guy gets an opportunity to get interviewed, hell, yeah, he's going to be head coach, easy.
1: Were, were, was there, were there guys that you coached with or who coached for you who you were convinced would have and should have gotten that opportunity that didn't?
3: Um, yeah, like I had Raheem Morris. I do Raheem Morris, and he was a head coach for a while. But uh, other than that, he, the, the personality of these guys, I think the guys that are head coaches probably pretty much deserve them, and then the ones that aren't right now probably – shouldn't have got one. I don't know. That's hard to explain. I don't
1: yeah, know. Yeah, that's fine. Um, I mean, Sean had the success of, you know, the offense in 2016. Kevin went to L.A., um, and they won a Super Bowl, you know, in that first year. So they both, as you described, were coming off seasons in which there was this feeling that they had really, you know, uh, had productive offenses. Yep. So – that's
3: uh, you know, and the kid at Detroit's going to have the same opportunity. Right. Uh, ben Johnson, he's going to have the same opportunity. teams that have good offenses, those are the ones that will get the interviews, and if they can perform in front of the GM and the owner, then then they'll get the jobs.
1: Yeah. Uh, another thing before we get to this team, real quickly, what goes into putting a game plan together? Um, like just give me the timeline from the moment your game on Sunday ends and you've got another game the following Sunday, what's the timeline in putting an offensive game plan together?
3: Oh, yeah. So Sunday or Monday morning, you have to grade your own game that you just played and you got to get all the injury reports, um, have your meetings and all that stuff and, um, watch the film and make your corrections. That takes a little bit of time. And then you get started on the next opponent probably around 1 or 2 o'clock in the afternoon on Monday, and you just start watching base for a second down. Then you start your run meetings on Tuesday afternoon with the flying coach and hear the runs that we want to put in. And then you get those in Tuesday probably around 3 o'clock, and then that's when you get the play actions and the bootlegs and all that stuff for a second down. Play passes in Tuesday night. That's – Probably get those in Tuesday night around 10 or 11 o'clock at night. And Wednesday morning, you start um, finalizing those and make sure those are all good. And you start working on third down. Wednesday afternoon, third down, you have practice, all that stuff. Then you do the red zone and short yardage and third down. I already said third down. Then you do red zone, short yardage, goal line. Um, So you do start to work on your situational type things Wednesday, after Wednesday, Thursday morning.
1: And Thursday morning. So it's all coming from a large playbook that you have, right? You're not creating new plays. These are all plays from a master playbook. Is that how it works?
3: The plays that you worked on since training camp and OTAs, yes. And then you also get your ideas from other teams that have played and had success against, you know, like we're playing the Carolina Panthers. We're watching the last four or five games that they played, and you might come up with a play or a scheme or, Something that somebody else did to him that gave them problems, you might do it similar, maybe change a formation or something like that. But you will add some new plays, uh, probably half a dozen or so, depending on the defenses that you're playing.
1: How big is the playbook, the master playbook, the one that you take to training uh, camp?
3: It's uh, never ending. It's it's a big. It's big. You know, I, I started to short it down a little bit. I just wanted the core concepts in. Of our plays, the running game and the passing game. You got your inside zone, your outside zone, your gap plays, your pull plays, your um, what a perimeter run plays, and then you do your quick game, your drop back, your four verticals, you know, whatever it might be. You try to just narrow them down. Um, and then you do them by um, specific areas of the field: red zone, 20-yard line, 15, 10, five, maybe third down and five. Maybe band beaters, whatever it is. But it's pretty big. Now, now I think about it. Yeah, it's pretty big.
1: Do you know how what the number of plays is that are in there? That like your uh, last playbook?
3: I'd say at least at least uh, forty run, at least 50, forty runs, and then uh, at least one hundred twenty passes, at
1: least. So like one hundred and sixty plays. Like Al Saunders yeah. famously had a seven hundred page playbook when he was here for Gibbs in two thousand. Five two thousand six or two thousand six two thousand seven.
2: That's yeah, that you sounds could make like
3: it as long you you, you can make I could make a seven hundred play, play playbook right now. I could make one play in about twenty plays. So, you, know, you could take four verticals for instance, and I could draw it up thirty five different ways with motions formations and all that stuff. So yeah, you can easily make a seven hundred play, play playbook.
1: Do you still do that? Do you still doodle around and create a play that comes to your mind?
3: Yeah, yeah. I like uh you know it's it's, it's good. I'm with the thirty third team and I do some stuff, so I have film access so i love I love going on and watching all these games and seeing who's having success and what's Mike McDaniel doing? I know he has great players, but they're having success on offense and trying to see if there's any new schemes out there that uh, you have to be aware of stay current just in case
1: what is new I mean, you watch Miami, you've seen a lot of this motion I think Miami's th-
3: probably yeah, they started the new. Flat motion, you know. A lot of people were doing them, you know, motions across the field, but they're they're starting to do just give Tyree Kill a running start on some of these, right? Kind of like arena football, but he's got to be lateral. That's the only really thing that's crazy new. Other than that, everything is pretty much the same. More RPOs, Bills are running more RPOs now, um, but everybody's been running RPOs. There's different ways of running them now.
1: Uh, I, I want to ask you about RPOs in a moment, but that what that motion that getting you know. It seems like everybody's copying Miami. You see, and you're talking about where you've got a receiver on the right side of the field, and he's going to go in motion to the right rather than coming across yeah, the yeah. line of scrimmage. I've seen a lot of copying of that on on RPO. Um, I've noticed, and it could be that there's just more running off of RPO, but the true RPO where the quarterback is going to make the decision to either throw it or give it to the runner. We're not talking about read option where the quarterback can keep it as a runner the one where you are at risk with linemen being downfield because they're blocking run. It seems to me that I've seen less of this this year, and I would attribute it to they called a lot of ineligible linemen downfield last year.
3: You're right. Yeah, they, they're, doing, they're doing it again this year too. Yeah. I can remember when really Chip Kelly was started it that I can remember – and I can remember we we're playing Philadelphia. I'd stand by the referees and wait for those damn linemen to be downfield. And I'd be pointing linemen, linemen downfield, and I actually got a call because <laughs> you know the quarterback pulls it out. They're reading the linebacker. If the linebacker flows with the run, then they pull it out and they throw the slant and, and try to replace where the linebacker should be yeah. in the pass. So that, that's where it started. Uh, but yeah, they're calling it more. So you're seeing less of. It. But there, there's still a lot of teams that are running quicker versions of it with maybe a tight end and a flat or right. you know, a bubble screen something
1: like that yeah all right uh let's talk about Washington because it's it's a weekly conversation about Sam Howell and the NFL changes dramatically week to week but the last two weeks have been pretty good for him and, and pretty good for the offense so what is your this week version of Sam Howell's future as a starting quarterback here in Washington
3: I think it looks bright right I mean he's thrown for you know 600 yards plus the last two games against two pretty good opponents and And he's done it a lot of different ways. It's not a lucky 600 yards where he's throwing a screen and the guy's running for 80 yards. This is a legitimate pushing the ball down the field, reading defenses out of the pocket, in the pocket, off schedule, on schedule, with anticipation type of 600 yards. Very quality. So yes, I think the future's bright for Sam. I think he's He's going to continue to get better and better the more he sees and the more he plays. So, yes, I think he's the guy that you can build your team around. Plus, he's got a young contract, so you have some money to spend.
1: 722 yards, in fact, the last two weeks, 70%, just over 70%, five touchdowns. Um, And he he went from being sacked on average six times a game to just two times a game the last two weeks. How much of that production? How much of the limitation now of sacks the last two weeks? How much of that credit do you give to Eric Bieniemy?
3: A lot. He's changed Um, early in games. He's given him some completion plays, easy things to get him get him started. Some release screens, some quick screens, some bubble screens. flat routes, whatever it might be, to get the ball out of his hands, helps the lineman, helps the quarterback get into groove, and then as the game goes on, then they start to air it out a little bit and challenge him, and they've done a better job with the protection schemes that I've noticed as well. They um, they they had they didn't really have a good plan for the Giants, let's just just call it what it was. They They were not prepared for the Giants' fronts and blitzes. But now they're uh, prepared. The last couple weeks, they haven't got challenged as many with as many blitzes. I thought New England would blitz them a lot more, but they didn't. But, um, much better job protecting. Them. That goes to the coordinator, and then getting the quarterback in groove, get him some confidence, get the ball out, let him set his feet and throw it. That goes to the coordinator as well.
1: What did the first game without Montez Sweat and Chase Young look like to you?
3: You know, it didn't look like a lot of different. It didn't look that much different to me. Did it to you?
1: Well, it's—I mean, everybody's saying you know no pressures, no sacks—but to me, it looked like New England was in quick game most of the day, and and Mac Jones gets it out pretty oh, they quickly. Were, yeah, yeah,
3: yeah. New England was getting the ball out of their hands quick. And they always have, and Mac's not going to hold the ball a lot. You know, they got the one sack that they called the personal foul on, which is yeah one of the worst calls in NFL history. But I—I um, <laughs> I, I didn't really, you know, I, I thought they'd keep one of the pass rushers, but. Uh, I didn't really think that those two guys were, like, dominating the game when they were here. So it wasn't that much different to me.
1: Yeah. Um, All right. So what is the challenge Sunday in Seattle? Uh, The last time Washington was in Seattle, I think, was that 2017 game where you guys went in with about four new linemen and had no chance before the game started and somehow pulled off a miracle win. Um, It's a tough place to play. Talk about that first.
3: Yeah, it is a tough place to play, and that's something you have to handle. Um, snap count, silent counts. You have to get your tight ends and make sure they're aware of what's going on, and whether you're holding hands or how you're handling the snap count. That's number one because in critical situations, it's going to be very, very loud, and Seattle's going to be ready to go. That's the most important thing, and then you just have to handle situational football and um, and and play your normal game. That's just it's no different going on the road. The biggest difference is the snap count.
1: Uh, t- tell me about the this, this snap count. The, the silent snap count. I think all of us recognize a silent snap count when we see it. You know sometimes it's the guard that you know taps the center or whatever. But walk us through how a silent count works.
3: Yeah, so we would have the uh, guard look back at the quarterback, and whatever the quarterback's signal was, whether it's a hand clap or a, a lift the leg up, that's when the quarterback's ready for the guard to tap the center. And then you have your, you have to do your dummy snap count. <laughs> so you have to have a fake one. Okay, I'm going to lift my leg up, and, and the guard's going to tap the center and fake like they were going and then try to get them off sides. So you have two or three different versions of the silent count, um, which is very simple. But the big thing is for tight ends and receivers and tackles, sometimes they're far away and they can't see the ball move as easily. So they have to kind of work in unison with the tackles and the guards. And It's hard for the outside guys. And uh, it's just a big advantage for home teams. I think that's why the biggest advantage in pro sports is home games for football teams.
1: Do tackles moving outside, do they go by watching the ball? That's what they're going on. It's a silent count, so they're watching Uh, the ball. No?
3: Sometimes they hold hands uh, with the guard, and the guard triggers him to move uh, based on his movement. Um, because you know, as a tackle, you can't. You're trying to get as deep as you can for the pass rush, and you can't be looking inside at the ball. So you kind of have to go by feel um, more so than watching the ball.
1: All right. Uh, you mentioned the crowd. You mentioned the challenge with Seattle, but specifically, how do they attack Seattle offensively? And then, what's the concern defensively?
3: Well, Seattle's had trouble, has had trouble stopping the run yep. all year long. That's why they went out and got Leonard Williams, which will help. But still, they had trouble last week against Baltimore. Baltimore ran for like 250 on them, but Baltimore's a pretty special team right now. Yep. So you have to be able to uh, run the ball, uh, keep their offense off the field. And then, obviously, defensively, I know they played much better in a secondary last week, but this is going to be a whole new challenge with D.K. Metcalf and obviously uh, the rest of the receivers there in, in Jigba. So we'll see how they do there. But you have to be able to run the ball against these guys on the road.
1: Yeah, but you're not expecting Eric Bienemy to all of a sudden become a run first team, do you, are you?
3: No, no, I don't think so. No. Um, which, you know, Seattle really, they have the, their strength of their team, in my opinion, is their secondary. So right. They just got to be careful. They got a really good nickel at whether when the rookie's a really good nickel, their corners are playing pretty good, their back end is their strength. So uh, they just haven't had a whole lot of pressure. I went out and signed Frank Clark and obviously Leonard Williams so that'll help him but, um so maybe yeah go after him what the hell
1: um what do you remember about that Seattle game that 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 week that 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 season uh that that part of the season
3: yeah that was that was uh that was, that was rough we had some guards playing that I didn't know, even know their names they had to put a name tag on their helmet you know these guys stepped up and played good that was I think one of Kirk's best games actually because he got hit a lot uh, I remember him throwing a double move to Bryant quick and then uh, fade to Josh Doxon, and then we handed off to Robert Keller for Kelly for the touchdown and a win. That was that was all a win, but that was Kirk's. I think one of his best performances, obviously not statistically, but physical toughness wise, that was one of his best performances.
1: That season was frustrating for me because I felt like had you remained healthy, you had added some pieces defensively, and you weren't nearly as bad on defense as you were in fifteen and sixteen. And, you know, they, yes. and that game actually got you, you know, back into it. And you had a game the next week or a couple of weeks later at New Orleans. We've talked about this game before that, you know, you're up 15. You had a chance to basically win it. And um, you end up losing that game and you lost Chris Thompson in that game. And then it kind of went south after that. But I, I thought that that season was a chance, you know, off of, back-to-back seasons in which you, you know, the last time, you know, you coached the only back-to-back winning seasons for this franchise in like a 25-year period uh, in 15 and 16, and I thought 17 had a chance to be maybe your best team had it stayed healthy.
3: Yes, I, I agree, 100%. Um, fortunately, we did not stay healthy. We got beat up. Um, it just came in droves, too, and they're all different injuries. It was really weird. You start to look at how we practice it, and why are we getting injured? Is it uh, know the data centers over there? Is it something coming in the air? About uh, it it's frustrating. So yeah. yeah, we just lost so many linemen that year. We had I think thirty different line comp- combinations that year.
1: Yeah, yeah, and that New Orleans game was devastating um, because that was yeah. you know b- basically I think you you had a chance to go above five hundred, and uh, Chris Thompson was cr- was important to that team. Um, I thought that year,
3: Chris, uh, Chris was huge. Yeah, Chris, yeah. Chris was huge. He, uh, he, his role was uh, critical for our football team. You know, his third down role, um, known passing situation roles. He's our best pass protector on third down, picking up the blitzes, and we get him matched up on the linebackers. And he was, he, his win rate was like ninety percent. I mean, so yeah, he was a critical piece to our success.
1: You know, speaking of that team in the running back position, you know who's had a decent career after leaving here is Samaj P. Ryan
3: Yeah, he has good old Samaj. he's a great kid. He's in Denver now. he's doing, he's still doing pretty good, yeah.
1: yeah he had a couple of decent games, I think here uh, for you. Um, all right, who do you like? How about
3: Craig Reynolds? I found Craig Reynolds on uh, Oh
1: yeah, YouTube. yeah, Craig Reynolds. Um, he was yeah. he, he was
3: Division three guys or Division two guys, and I just uh youtubed like their top. The top, you know, ten or fifteen players, and watch their highlight film, and we end up signing Craig because of that.
1: <laughs> yeah, but did, did Craig play in any? Reg- I don't remember him. I remember him playing he well in the preseason. He dressed
3: a game. Yeah, he dressed a game, and then uh, when I got let go, Callahan cut him um, because I don't know. He, he knew that Craig was my guy, so I think he was trying <laughs> to send me a message. <laughs> It's that oh, it worked, but by the way, I just can't.
1: That guy, I know that he's an excellent offensive line coach, but you know, he really took some shots at you after you got fired and he took over. You know that, right? They were yeah. they were not yeah. super direct, but they were they were they were directly yeah. subtle, I should say. So I, I, I'm yeah. assuming the relationship wasn't super tight with with old Callahan, old Coach Cal.
3: No, not really. Not really. Really the only coach I really didn't hire I was Bruce Allen hired Bill.
1: but Right. Anyway,
3: that's neither here nor
1: there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll tell you one thing. He, he, gave you, he gave answers in press conferences that were like dissertations. I mean, they were five minutes long. Um, and uh, not as much sense of humor uh, came with his answers as they did with yours. <laughs> um, all right, so who do you like Sunday? Washington, Seattle.
3: You know what, I think it's going to be a good game, but I think Seattle takes it. I just think um, they're going to get Kenneth Walker going a little bit more and give Geno a chance. I really hated their game plan against Baltimore, but I think they're going to do better at home. And uh, I just think right now at this time, they're going to have time to throw for Geno and Seattle's better. But it's going to be close.
1: So you like Washington plus the number, six and a half. No, I'm going to take Seattle <laughs> You're going to lay the 6.5. All right, let's talk about a couple uh, of... 24 how's that? Twenty-four
3: seventeen. There you go. Final.
1: There you go. So if you take Washington, you buy the half point to 7, you push on that one. There you um, go. There are a couple of other really good games this week, and it starts at 1 o'clock with San Francisco coming off their bye week. Jacksonville as well. One team playing great in Jacksonville, the 49ers having lost three in a row after they looked like easily the best team in the league. So... Uh, tell me what you think about this matchup.
3: You know what, I think Jacksonville's coming off a bye, too, which helps out a lot. They're getting healthy, and they are healthy. They don't have any injuries of note to their football team, but at least San Francisco's coming off their bye, and they're getting Debo back, and I think Trent's coming back. So they'll be at full strength, and I think losing three games in a row, having a bye week, I think will help San Francisco. I think they come in and take care of Jacksonville.
1: Uh, What about Cleveland's defense against Baltimore this week? Cleveland, the first time they played the Ravens, they had Dorian Thompson Robinson, a quarterback. They got Deshaun back. You know, they held the Cardinals last week. I understand they were playing this guy Clayton Toon, a rookie. They held them in total to 58 yards of offense. I mean, it was domination. The Cleveland defense is one of the best we've seen in recent years, Um, although there's some really good defenses this year. The Jet defense is great. But uh, do you give Cleveland any chance against the Ravens Sunday?
3: When you play great defense, you always have a chance. You create turnovers. You give your offense great field position. So, yes, they have a chance for sure, and Deshaun needs to continue to play well. He had some good throws last week, a couple bombs. uh, Mari Cooper, which helped them win that game. But I just think Baltimore is uh, too good. I think they can. Baltimore is a weird team because they are. You think of them as like, oh my gosh, they're so fast and athletic, but really they they can punish you on both sides of the ball up front. They got a hell of a tight end and uh, Ricard. He comes in and he mauls people, and they got big guards. They got great center and Lindenbaum. He's he's unbelievable. They can maul you with Gus Edwards, and they have Justice Hill, and they just added this other Mitchell guy. They can all hit you with the runs, and then. And then Mark Andrews in the passing game is a dominant force. So I just think Baltimore is a better team.
1: Uh, in in the late window, Lions at Chargers. I think kind of a big game for the Chargers, um, in particular if they're gonna if they're gonna get back to the postseason this year. Uh, do you give them a chance? They're actually they're actually a three point dog at home, um, although it's really not home. So far, you don't get home field. Uh, in in the odds from the odds makers because it's actually a road game for for the Chargers most weeks when they when they are at home even for the Rams to a certain degree um, how do you size up that one?
3: Yes, I like Detroit a lot. I think that San Diego or the Chargers, sorry, are, uh, uh they don't really have an identity right now. They can't run the ball. I mean, Austin Eckler is a hell of a back. They got to get him outside on the perimeter somehow, and in the passing game he'll be involved. and then Keenan Allen, those two guys are. Really, the only two they have on offense. Justin's a good player, but losing Palmer, losing um, Williams hurts them a lot. They don't have anybody else. Their tight ends aren't getting a lot. Everett and Parham aren't playing that well. So it's a two-man show over there, and I think Detroit will stop them and and continue their ability to run the football against the Chargers this week. Last week, I think they had 200 yards-plus rushing against the Raiders for the Lions. So I'm thinking the Lions are going to come out with that mentality again and open up some play passes for Jared Goff and they whoop the Chargers butt.
1: Um two more. Uh what do the Jets do with this great defense with some playmakers and with clearly horrible quarterbacking?
3: Yeah, that's uh they, they gotta figure it out. They gotta you know they don't have any choices. You can't just go out and find a quarterback right now. I know the Rams find Carson Wentz. Maybe they should have tried to upgrade the quarterback at some time in the offseason, knowing you had a 40-year-old quarterback. and um, I don't know. You just have to coach him up and get him some plays that he knows and likes and can run and punt when you have to punt. Just don't turn the ball over and hopefully to win games 17 to 14 or whatever. Maybe. Is Colt McCoy done? Uh, no. He's still getting paid by the Cardinals. After him to go back and play, he's got uh, four youngins. I think it'd have to be a pretty attractive offer. So. He's not done-done, but he can be done if he wants to be done, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, uh, it just seems like the, like I was thinking about, you know, why, why Sean didn't sign Colt McCoy instead of Carson Wentz. Although I did read Carson was working with your brother, right?
3: Yeah, he goes down there. A lot of quarterbacks go down there. John's got an office in Tampa, and, and they go watch film and whatever and have some fun and talk ball. All
1: right, uh, give me your lock of the week.
3: Block of the week is Detroit.
1: Detroit laying three
3: at the Chargers. I watched, I the, watched Chargers. the Chargers play against the Jets, and I know it's the Jets. The Jets are really good defense, but right now the Chargers really – I mean, they had a punt return for touchdown. They had an interception to set them up in the two-yard line. That's how they got two of their touchdowns. I just don't see them moving the ball consistently against Detroit. Uh,
1: not to mention that um, Detroit is coming off a bye, uh, and – and the Chargers are on a short week because they played the Monday night game. Um, scheduling doesn't always work out fairly. Uh, that may be a big and reason. that. Yeah, why the Lions are three-point favorites. All right, uh, thanks for doing this as always. Have a good weekend. I'll talk to you next week. I right, Kevin. fifth. Up next, my smell test for the weekend, if you want it, uh, right after these words from a few of our sponsors. This segment of the show brought to you by Window Nation. If you've got older windows, 10 years of age or older, you should be thinking about new windows. You may have already thought about it. Now's the time to act. We're approaching winter. A winter, if you haven't seen, that is being forecasted to be much snowier Than normal. Yeah, the Capital Weather Gang had their winter weather forecast out yesterday. They're calling for much above normal snowfall. Doug Kammerer, Channel 4, he was on with me the other day on radio. He's calling for a much above snowy winter. Uh, So if you've got old windows, you're going to lose big money uh, by paying much higher heating bill costs than you should be, you can reduce your energy costs both in the winter and summer by up to 30% with new windows. And right now, Window Nation wants to help out as we approach winter. Uh, right now, for this month only, 0% financing for five years. 0% on whatever you purchase if you decide to finance your purchase for five years, plus Two windows free with every two you buy, so you're only paying half price on the windows to begin with. Now is the time to protect your family from the elements, lower your energy costs, and upgrade the look and feel of your home. Window Nation's the company to work with. You call them. Right now at eight six six ninety nation or go to WindowNation.com. Mention my name. You'll get a free estimate so you've got nothing to lose. They will take good care of you. Their average installer, 16 years of experience with over 20,000 windows installed. It's one of the reasons that 96% of their installs at Windowation require no follow-up service. Uh, I have trusted them into my home. You can trust them into yours. I've been endorsing WindowNation for 14 years. It always works out for everybody that uses them. Call them now at eight six six ninety nation or go to Nation. So before we get to the smell test, uh, Maryland is not in the smell test. Man, they've got a big game tomorrow against Nebraska. Why is it an important game for Maryland? Well, it's not just an important game for them, it's an important game for Nebraska as well in Matt Rule's first year. But this is really the best opportunity for both teams to get a sixth win and become bowl eligible. For the Terps, it would be a third straight bowl season, even though this one feels disappointing right now, more on that in a moment. Uh, But any college football coach will tell you that these bowl games, uh, no matter how insignificant they are to a lot of people that follow the sport, especially now that we have a playoff and next year a much bigger playoff, more likely than not, um, they provide an extra month of practice. College football coaches treat these bowl games as another month of practice, almost like the first spring of, Practice, and it's very important. They'll tell you uh, to the development of next year's team. So for Maryland, look, they started five and zero. They didn't beat anybody during that five and zero start. Mike Loxley did say before the year he expected his team to be now in a position to compete. For a Big Ten championship, he did not predict a Big Ten championship. Some of you have reached out to me recently and said, "Stop defending Locks." He predicted a Big Ten championship. No, he didn't. He pre- he said that the standard now at Maryland should be competing for Big Ten championships. He felt like the program was in that position, and you know, through five and a half games, it looked like it. They were 5-0, and they were up on Ohio State 17-10 in the third quarter in Columbus. Uh, But since then, it's gone downhill. As a double-digit favorite against Illinois at home, they lost. As a double-digit favorite on the road against Northwestern, they lost. And those are two really hurtful losses. Now, Mike's done a great job. He's recruited well. He's coached well. Um, there are moments, certainly during some of these games, where I'm as frustrated as some of you. You know, the penalties um, have been a problem uh, for sure uh, during his run here in College Park. But look at what it was before he got here. This program was a mess. And he is coaching in the toughest, other than the SEC West, the second toughest anyway, division in college football, which will change next year. But, you know, competing in the Big Ten East has been, you know, very difficult. Uh, Two bowl wins in a row, and it looked like a season that could produce eight or nine wins that won't now. Um, But he needs this one tomorrow at Nebraska. Not for his job. He's safe. I mean, Locks has done, I think – Considering where this program was, an outstanding job, but they need to go to another bowl game. They need to have that extra time. Uh, they need to be, you know, in one of those holiday spotlight bowl games where everybody's betting and and maybe win a third uh, in a row. Not you know overly significant to a national picture. I understand that, but they have Michigan next week and at Rutgers to close the season. They'll be an underdog, big underdog next week, and they'll probably be an underdog at Rutgers. Rutgers is 6-3. and three. they played well. Uh, hell, they were in the same kind of position Maryland was against Ohio State. They were up at halftime. They had a chance to go up 9 early in the third quarter, and they threw a pick 6, and it was all downhill from there. Kind of almost a similar game to the one that Maryland played. Uh, tomorrow's big for the Terps. Um, hope they can go to Lincoln and get a win. All right, let's get to the smell test. Kevin looks where the John Q. public is putting their cash and does the opposite. It's It's time time for for the smell Smell test. Test. The smell test, as always, presented by MyBookie. Go to MyBookie.com or MyBookie.ag. Use my promo code, KevinDC, and they'll hook you up with a cash bonus on your initial deposit. MyBookie, by the way, has the lowest total they've ever had on a game. I know that because it's the lowest total ever on a game. Iowa and Rutgers tomorrow, 28 is the over-under number at my bookie. Now, if you've been following Iowa, you know they have very low totals in their games. But 28 is an all-time low in college football history, or at least since they started to track this kind of thing. Uh, pretty amazing um, that a college football game has a total of 28. But if you've been watching Iowa recently, all of their games go under pretty much. The last three weeks, the totals have been 34. Thirty and a half and thirty-two. And every single game has not only gone under the total, it's been way under the total. Last week, thirty-two against Northwestern, ten to seven final. The week before that, it was thirty and a half against Minnesota, twelve to ten the final. And the week before that, it was thirty-four against Wisconsin, and the final score was fifteen to six. Um, it has been an under fiesta this year in Iowa games. Seven and two, the under is so far uh, with Iowa Hawkeye games. And this week against Rutgers, 28 is the total. That is not included in the smell test this week. Uh, What is? Well, let's get to it. First of all, last week uh, I mentioned that a lot of you don't like when I give out more college games than pro games. Well, I was 0-2 in the pros and uh, and 4-7-1 in college, Um, 4-7-1. So this week, though, more NFL games than college games. But let's start in college. How the hell is Virginia Tech favored at Boston College? I had Virginia Tech last week. They got crunched by Louisville 34-3. They are favored by a point and a half at Boston College, a team that's won five games in a row. Plus, Boston College, closest against Florida State of anybody this year. They lost by two to Florida State. Uh, I'll I'll take the Hokies, minus the one and a half. Liberty's laying 13 and a half at home against ODU. Liberty's undefeated. Uh, The public loves Liberty. I'll buy the half point and take ODU plus the 14, ODU's Old Dominion, for those of you that don't know. Oak State coming off that Bedlam win, the last Bedlam game with Oklahoma last week, is laying two and a half against UCF. That's perceived to be way too short. An Oklahoma State team that's really played well recently, not just last week and their win against Oklahoma, but Gundy's got that team playing very well and still in the hunt for a Big 12 championship. I'll take UCF by the half point and take them plus three. Houston, I've been kind of good with Houston for some reason. I had them against West Virginia. They won outright on a Hail Mary. Then I had K-State against Houston. And uh, K State won big, and then last week I had Houston plus a short number against Baylor, and they won outright twenty-five to twenty-four in overtime. This week they are a public choice against Cincinnati, uh, catch, uh, catching two and a, Cincinnati catching two and a half. I'll take the Bearcats. They've had a tough season in their first season without Fickle. I'll take Cincy by the half point, plus three. And then San Jose State is laying a point and a half against 8-1 and one Fresno. 4-5 and five San Jose State laying a point and a half against Fresno. No big injuries in that game to quarterbacks anyway. I'll take San Jose State, lay the point and a half. Let's go to Sunday. I like the early game in Frankfurt. I like the Patriots plus one and a half. Uh, The Patriots, you know, they're a team right now that nobody believes in, and they're only getting a point and a half against a Colt team that, you know, has had some moments. So I'll take the Patriots plus one and a half early Sunday morning. I'll take the Packers plus three at Pittsburgh. The public likes the Steelers against a Green Bay team that has struggled to score but is pretty good defensively. Uh, The Texans on Sunday – are getting six and a half at Cincinnati. Uh, The Bengals on a roll right now, less than a touchdown, sort of begging you to take Cincinnati. Cincinnati right now the number one bet public team of the weekend. I'll take the Texans and C.J. Stroud plus the seven buying the half point. I like Washington. The public's on Seattle. I said this on radio early this morning. I would play this game sooner rather than later. I think there's going to be some sharp money on Washington. I think that line's going to come down. It's 6.5 right now. By the half point, I am taking Washington plus the 7. But you better do that now if you want to go with this pick or if you like Washington as well because it would not surprise me to see this line at 6 or less by game time. Uh, How the Jets are favored against anybody after what we saw from Zach Wilson on Monday Night Football, I have no idea. But they're favored by a point against Vegas. I'll take the Jets laying a point. And then I like Denver in Monday Night Football plus 7 at Buffalo – Uh, uh, Buffalo is another heavily bet public team this week. Uh, So there you go. That's the smell test. Virginia Tech minus one and a half at BC. ODU uh, plus 14 against Liberty. UCF plus three against Oak State. Uh, Cincinnati plus three against Houston. San Jose State minus one and a half against Fresno, then the Patriots plus one and a half, the Packers plus three, the Texans plus seven, Washington plus seven, and the Jets minus one on Sunday, and the Broncos plus seven on Monday night football. All right, back on Monday. Enjoy the football weekend again. I like Washington in an upset at Seattle, 30-24 to in overtime. Second down, Freeney coming again. Cousins gets rid of it, has a Again, firing deep for Dachson, diving. He's got it. Ryan Anderson comes in at fullback. Kelly, the
0: back. Rob Kelly going forward. Rob Kelly, touchdown. Washington leads. Wilson.
3: One man rush, but here comes Kerrigan. He gets away. He sets. He throws a hail mary to the end zone.